Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone. I'm happy to say that our prologue episode has gotten the attention of many folks out there, so thank you for the prompt and very positive feedback. There were a number of important and recurring themes that we heard from listeners of the prologue episode. Many people reaffirmed the idea that, yes, it was a long time since the assassination. And yes, many folks were struggling with recalling the facts and the circumstances and understanding the context related to the assassination. Younger listeners expressed questions about time frame. We're going to make sure that each episode spends some time on these topics to be sure that they are clear to listeners. Other listeners appreciated how we are attempting to connect this to the present circumstances in our society. We will continue to point out the interesting historical parallels and the precedents in the hopes that they may foster more wisdom. One last thing before we get started. This episode, episode number one, is dedicated to my sons, Alec and Austin. Each of them, over the years, and rather lovingly, I might add, has uh, kidded me about the amount of time I've spent reviewing the topics that are now the basis for this podcast. Literally thousands of hours of research over the years, including video, audio, and published materials. You know, I've never been too easy to buy for at uh, Christmas, but one thing I could count on every year from them was another book on the JFK assassination. Some of them were good books and some not so good, but I appreciated them all. Remember that this tragedy is about our president. As a nation, we experienced that loss together. Most of us will never likely meet a president in our lifetime, but all of us experience a loss on a more personal level. As I finish this podcast, I am looking at the date, and it's late. It's after midnight. Uh, the date is February 7th. I, I lost my oldest son a few years back. It's his birthday today. It, it was an assassination of sorts. He was killed by the drug epidemic sweeping this country. He was brilliant. I miss his gentle soul. My heart aches with loss, especially on this day. I miss you, Alec. He would have been 29 today. It's been four years now since he left us. He would have liked this broadcast. My youngest son is thriving. Austin is about to graduate from law school. And I'll tell you, I got two great books from him this year on the subject of Christmas. The tradition lives on. Okay, well, thanks for indulging me on that. And um, now it's time to take you on a mental road trip, so to speak. Hopefully it's the product of that research and understanding and with good storytelling, too. Metaphorically, we are going coast to coast, all the way from the Statue of Liberty to the Golden Gate Bridge, so to speak. We will, from time to time, wander off the beaten path with detailed episodes on esoteric parts of the assassination story. But it's important to start this wander by spending some time talking about the key impactful events that set the backdrop for the assassination story. So we're going to focus a number of episodes that are foundational to understanding why this tragedy is still a mystery and a bigger-than-life story. Some of those events occurred before, during, and after the assassination, and some of the critical issues arose as events and circumstances began to unfold. As I said, this is going to be a bit of a wander without a roadmap, but 
rather just a compass for now. Trust me, though, we will make it all the way across the country and you will enjoy the journey. And I promise I will tie it all together before we finish. So just stay listening. So here we go. Close your eyes and I'm going to take you all the way back to 1960. It was the presidential campaign and in one of those historical moments of politics, JFK won out against Lyndon Johnson to become the Democratic nominee for the presidency. A Catholic had never been the president of the United States. If he was to win, it would be an epic event. You know, as a side note, I know that sounds a bit ludicrous that we make a comment in modern society about the chances of a Catholic gaining high office, but it was true then. Mostly Protestants occupied the White House over the years, and no doubt that was a product of the origins of where early Americans came from and what they practiced and believed in. And it was also coupled in later years, beginning around 1880, with the bigotry that accompanied the mass European immigration, mostly from countries that were essentially exporting Catholics, so to speak, at the time. Okay, back to the Democratic Convention. In a stunning political move, in the midst of the convention, Kennedy asks Johnson to be his vice president. Even Bobby Kennedy, JFK's brother and most trusted confidant, is hesitant to accept this decision. In the end, the math of the Electoral College would be stronger than ideological dogma or personal connection. This was going to be a close race between Kennedy and the Republican candidate Richard Nixon. They needed to cover all the bases in order to ensure a victory in the general election. Richard Nixon had been Eisenhower's VP. The country had just gone through eight years of economic expansion under a Republican president who was an iconic general in World War II. The election, from a popular vote standpoint, turned out to be the closest in the 20th century up to that time. Nationally, Kennedy won the popular vote by a little over 100,000 votes. Back then, the population of the United States was smaller than it is today, and at that time, there was only about 80 million people voting in the national elections. That's roughly half of the number of people who voted in the 2020 presidential election. In contrast, the Electoral College vote in the 1960 election was not as close. Kennedy won easily, 303 to 219. This was simply because of the straightforward but still peculiar impact of the voting math in the Electoral College. More on that later. It's notable that the math of the 1960 election worked in almost exactly the opposite direction than what we experienced in the 2016 presidential election. Today, there is much talk of the apparent unfairness around the Electoral College system and how candidates like Donald Trump could lose the popular vote but prevail under the Electoral College tabulation to win a close race. As a side note, five times in our history has a candidate won the popular vote and lost the election. Andrew Jackson in 1824, Samuel Tilden in 1876, Grover Cleveland in 1888, and then in modern times, Al Gore in 2000, and finally Hillary Clinton in 2016. Both Andrew Jackson and Grover Cleveland lost in those elections, but later on in life went on in subsequent presidential races to win and become president. In JFK's case, it worked almost exactly the opposite. It is true that he won the popular vote by only a cat's whisker, but he cleaned up on the electoral vote. 
that basically translates to the fact that he won narrowly in most states. But he won most states, and he won four key ones, including Texas, Georgia, West Virginia, and Illinois. These four states represented 71 electoral votes. Had he lost these four, it would have been a lopsided electoral college victory for Nixon. The pro forma calculation, had Nixon won those four states, would have been 290 for Nixon versus 232 for Kennedy. Johnson's value to the ticket helped to bring the Deep South, and Texas and Georgia in the Deep South were half that 71 vote total. It's notable that in Kennedy's first press conference after he was elected, toward the end of the discussion, one member of the press asked a very poignant question that I think has relevance today. Given that the popular vote was so close, the reporter simply asked Kennedy, should there be any change to the process we use in this country to elect our president? His response would be still relevant today. He said that it was doubtful at this time both the House and the Senate and the requisite number of state legislatures could pass a constitutional amendment related to the topic, basically implying that a transition to a method based on the popular vote only for the nation as a whole would be difficult to achieve constitutionally. Instead, he did offer the advice that there should be and could be changes to the laws regarding how members of the Electoral College actually vote. And that legislation would be desirable to ensure that members of the Electoral College are compelled to vote consistently with the results of the popular vote in their states. Does that sound familiar? Uh, then and even now, they are not bound by law to vote for the candidate who won the popular vote in that respective state. Uh, keep in mind that even back then, in such close races, there was a question of how members of the Electoral College might vote. The Kennedys had concerns about that in the immediate aftermath of the 1960 election, which was, at that time, again, as I said earlier, the closest presidential election to date in the 20th century. When you think about the questions that have arisen in current-day elections, this historical fact reemphasizes that not much has changed on that front in over 60 years. It is true that in the last 60 years, states have subsequently enacted various laws related to the Electoral College vote, but they are laws that generally give rise to penalties for the members of the Electoral College when and if they vote against the will of the people as expressed in the results of the popular vote. That is much different than compelling them to vote in the same way as the popular vote went in the state. Critics have pointed out that these penalties are not enough to ensure that the Electoral College vote is always properly cast, consistent with the popular vote. I suspect that, other than the politics of it, our forefathers decided that there should be but one more stopgap measure in our political system. If all hell were to break loose, perhaps a total societal breakdown or an election was rigged, just two bizarre but possible examples, but in each case, bringing about a truly extraordinary circumstance, well then, reasoned and learned men and women could then override the insanity of it. History has told us that it's a rare thing that any of this nonsense might occur. But nevertheless, the events of the past few years may make it even harder to convince folks that the Electoral College should be tampered with. 
As a side note, the Electoral College has its origins in the Constitution itself. A compromise at the time the Constitution was drafted between the idea of electing a president popularly and electing a president through a group of qualified citizens. Article 2 of the Constitution and the Twelfth Amendment refer to electors, but not to the Electoral College itself. The ratification of the Twelfth Amendment, the expansion of voting rights, and the state's use of the popular vote to determine who will be appointed as electors has substantially changed the process over the years. I don't want to get too sidetracked with this matter, but it takes a two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate and a ratification by three-quarters of the states to make an amendment to our Constitution. Many proposals on this topic have been made over the years, but none have passed. As I mentioned in the prologue episode, uh, TV and live feed were playing an ever-increasing role in the public's connection with candidates and the creation and the maintenance of their political image. It was also a great way to advance the communication of their political platforms. We take it for granted today, but it was a new and groovy thing in 1960. The 1960 election saw the introduction of the first televised presidential debate. Kennedy and Nixon sat on the stage in a black and white broadcast, which gave the public one of the first televised media events of its kind in our history. The people of the United States, and indeed the world, got a big dose of President Kennedy's good looks, his charm, his charisma, and his endearing display of intellect. Kennedy himself was a Pulitzer Prize winner, and his ability to communicate a vision was evident. Nixon arguably didn't have near those endearing personal qualities, and it showed on the TV broadcast, although it was clear that Nixon was an experienced member of the government with impressive understanding of facts and a good sense of the world order outside our country. And while the rhetoric used by the candidates in those debates was much more tame than it is today, it allowed the public to hear direct answers by the candidates, thereby establishing more clarity on the contrasting views of Republicans and Democrats at the time. As you might expect, Nixon was a 1960s version of a Republican conservative. In a typical comment at one point during the debate, he indicated that the cost of certain programs under a Republican administration would arguably be less than in the Democratic one if JFK were to be elected. Kennedy was transparent with the American people, indicating that it was unlikely there would even be a balanced budget in the first few years of his administration, given that they were coming off of a recession. Something you might not see today, but on several occasions during the debate, Nixon commented that there was agreement by the two candidates on what was to be accomplished. It was merely a question of means that differentiated the two. That kind of statement would be unheard of in today's political environment, and it underscores how far right and how far left that the current political operatives are today in contrast to the differences present in 1960. A famous part of the debate included a moment where Nixon, apparently nervous and feeling the temperatures rise in the broadcast booth, began to sweat profusely on his upper and lower lip. The camera caught it, and at that moment it became painfully obvious to many viewers that Kennedy held the upper hand in the delivery at the debate. Again, you have to remember historically that this was an unprecedented event and smaller things got lots of attention and Nixon's perspiration was a great example. 
It certainly impacted the way some people voted, but the impact may or may not be what historians have made it out to be. It certainly was part of the basket of circumstances and events that helped sway the election in Kennedy's favor. The presidential debate was important, but the more important point was how close this election was and that every tactical step or misstep could mean the difference between winning and losing. So, before it was actually decided on election day, the parties involved knew they had to take extraordinary steps to win it. That's true in every election. But what came next was more than unusual. Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., JFK's father, was an experienced politician. He grew up in the hard-nosed politics of Boston. We'll delve into his background in more detail in another episode. We'll call him senior for now. He was the patriarch of the family and his influence in Kennedy life over the years is relevant. He was experienced in this dirty business of politics and he knew what it was like to take extraordinary measures to win elections. Now at this moment of the story, Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. may have reached a triumphant and rather tragic moment which potentially set the course for JFK's eventual assassination. Senior, the father, had made his money in the whiskey business during the years of prohibition, and that was no secret. And he was well acquainted with members of the mob as part of all of that. You have to appreciate the context under which the mafia, or the mob as you want to call it, operated in that period of our history, and particularly in the early part of the 20th century from about 1930 on. This was only 30 years later, and most of it before the electronic age. It's an important precursor to understanding how all of this eventually comes together. But I will get to that in more detail in an upcoming episode on Kennedy's father. Well, the senior Joe Kennedy instigated conversations with members of the mafia about soliciting help in order to garner more votes in both the state of Illinois and the state of West Virginia. Both of these states were going to have close elections and the electoral votes they represented were critical to winning. In those days, these two states were considered swing states for the 1960 election. As it still is today, Chicago's urban population was key to winning in Illinois, and in both states, union help was necessary in order to get out the vote. So why the mafia? Well, in those days, the ties between a number of unions and the mafia was fairly prescient. We all have to understand and it was a different time and place and we will explore some of the complex reasons behind that in a separate episode. Sorry I keep saying that but hopefully you'll keep listening and tuning in. There are a lot of details to this story and I guess that means I'm going to have a lot more episodes as well. The Teamsters Union in those days was led by no other than Jimmy Hoffa and it was the biggest union in the U.S. with aggressive ties to the mob. Senior was a shrewd political analyst and strategist. He knew that the existence of the mafia as a large-scale criminal enterprise had been brought to light in the McClellan Committee investigations and that both Jack and Bobby's involvement in that committee had been critical to that process. The committee's more formal name was the United States Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management. It was a Senate committee that dissolved at the end of March 1960 after about three years of investigation. 
McClellan wanted to go further into the organized crime aspect of it, but had reached the limits of the committee's jurisdiction. JFK, as a senator, was on the committee, and Robert Kennedy served as chief counsel and investigator. Senior knew that aggressive pursuit of the mafia and corrupt union leaders with mafia ties was something that would be intensified if Jack won the election. JFK even made a specific public reference on film before the election about Hoffa and the importance of bringing him specifically to justice. But what if Joe Kennedy Sr. could turn this sensitive and somewhat dangerous circumstance into a political asset for JFK? Specifically, what if he could approach the mafia and the unions and assure them that Jack and Bobby would lay off their aggressive pursuit in exchange for receiving help? Help in the election, specifically in Chicago and in West Virginia, where more votes were needed to win the election. Without a pre-election deal, there was no telling where Bobby and Jack might drive things once in power. I know it's hard to believe in today's day and age, but back then, uh, even the existence of the Mafia as a large-scale criminal enterprise was not well known, uh, at least not well known to the public in the United States before the actual McClellan hearings. Hoover and the FBI had largely ignored them for reasons that we will get into in a later episode. Despite this, it was no secret that the existence of the Mafia was becoming increasingly better known to the American public, and it was becoming increasingly more likely that a large-scale government crackdown on them was inevitable at some point in the future. A deal was made. They would help young JFK win the election. It's really just speculation on this point, but it was likely that Sr. did not disclose to either of his sons the exact nature of the deal that was made, only that there would be help. In the nuanced language that almost always comes with political deals, finesse of words would inevitably result in what the Mafia viewed after the election as a betrayal by Jack and Robert. In the Mafia, your word means everything. In the very first famous modern Hollywood movie about the mob, the Valachi Papers, that real-life moment of loyalty was reenacted. It was taken from a dramatic, true story moment that actually occurred in the McClellan Committee. True to the story of the JFK assassination, that fact is more captivating than fiction. That moment in the committee will live on in infamy. In real life and in the movie, a member of the Kosher Nostra, Joe Valachi, a man that had betrayed his brethren, demonstrated on television how two members of the Mafia family perfected their loyalty to one another, an ancient custom straight from Sicily, each pricking and sharing their blood, thereby becoming blood brothers. And we know that blood is always thicker than water. With that bond came an oath of loyalty and silence. Loyalty wasn't anything, it was everything. For the leader of a mafia family, this idea would be no different whether you were president of the United States or a small store owner paying tribute with a bribe. Betrayal had consequences. So, it was done. It was a glorious moment in history, the night that John Kennedy won the election. In one of the most riveting inaugural speeches in the history of our republic, on January 20th, 1961, JFK delivered a vision for the next generation of Americans as he was sworn in as the 35th president of the United States. He trumpeted a concept of personal service to our nation, 
This was personal to him and a primary objective he had for his own presidency. He had grown up in a privileged environment and felt a deep sense of obligation to use that for good and for his country. He truly wanted those thoughts and ideas to pollinate across the nation. A bold agenda that reaffirmed that America was to remain a beacon for the entire world. It was embodied in things like the development of the Peace Corps and pledging to send a man to the moon before the end of the decade. He wrote most of that speech himself with the help of his principal speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, in the calm and relaxing atmosphere of his family's Palm Beach home. As they wrote it, they took umbrage to the rich history of inaugural presidential speeches. Lincoln's second inaugural speech was brilliant, but it had been accomplished in a short number of words, too short for this inaugural. An FDR speech in 1933 was also inspiring, but perhaps too long. Ultimately, they would settle on something in between and gain inspiration from both. It was 15 minutes of inspiring oration that set the stage for his presidency. The last four minutes are well known, and in this current time of confusion, they are but one more beacon of hope in our current fog. In your hands, my fellow citizens, more than mine, will rest the final success or failure of our course. Since this country was founded, each generation of Americans has been summoned to give testimony to its national loyalty. The graves of young Americans who answered the call to service surround the globe. Now the trumpet summons us again, not as a call to bear arms, though arms we need, not as a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, a struggle against the common enemies of man, tyranny, poverty, disease, and war itself. Can we forge against these enemies a grand and global alliance north and south, east and west, that can assure a more fruitful life for all mankind. Will you join in that historic effort? In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of man. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us here the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. It was a glorious moment in American history. JFK was the first American president born in the 20th century, and it truly was a passing of the torch to the next generation. He was 43 years old when he took office, and the youngest president ever in our history at that moment. What he would face soon thereafter was monumental. In his own words, we don't do things because they are easy. We do them because they are hard. He and Bobby would soon find out what the definition of hard was once you're occupying the Oval Office. This is your host, Jeff Crudell, and I hope you've enjoyed Episode 1 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>